Welcome to episode six of our mini-part mini-series on misery. Where Paul writes the end on this chapter of his life. Welcome to First Time Through. New Eyes on Castle Rock. With Kim Payne. And Otto Mullins. Well, she got him back to his room, got him in bed. And now he's like, yeah, give me the pain medicine. Yeah. Um... So, gave him the injection, puts the steno, puts him in his wheelchair so she can work. There, she said, I'm going to get some sleep. If a car comes, I'll hear it. If we're left alone, I'll probably sleep right through until tomorrow morning. If you want to get up and work in longhand, here's your chair. Your manuscript's over there on the floor. I frankly don't advise it until your legs start to warm up a little, though. So, she's it's pretty content in leaving him to his own devices now. She right, because really... she put the big lock on the door. He's mm-hmm. not getting out anymore. He yeah. can't pick it. Um. And she's very confident that she's got the control that she needs now. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, I'm not going to read any more of Misery Returns. Paul, how long do you think it's going to take? And he says, it'll probably take about a month, but I can probably get it done in a week. Um, two weeks. He says a month. If or, I really go into overdrive, five days or oh, maybe, five days, a yeah, maybe a week. It'll be ragged, but it'll be there. She sighed and looked down at her hands with dull concentration. I know it's going to be less than two weeks. I wish you'd just promise me something. What? Not to read anymore until I'm done, he says. Or until I have to, you know, stop. Yes, or until I have to stop. That way you'll get the conclusion without a lot of fragmentation. It'll have a lot more punch. So he's going to delay her satisfaction from uh, misery returns. Mm -hmm. So that way he's going to really try and drive up how much she wants to read it. Yep. Um. So, yeah, so after she went upstairs, went to bed, went to sleep, he got himself up into the wheelchair, and then uh, he retrieved the lighter fluid from under the mattress and went and put it in a little hiding spot. Where he'd found. That he had found by accident. So he stowed it and put the baseboard back in place and hoped that it was... He's fairly confident that Annie doesn't know about it because of the dust. Because of the dust, but... And then he starts writing again. A little foreshadowy. Yeah. um, Which is good. And I think that that's, like, definitely the point of it being in longhand and difficult to read here. It's like, if you were were reading through it a little bit, um, the reviewed eyes... The Borkas called it fire oil or Mm -hmm. fire blood oil. Like, most uh, essentially simple languages, that of the Borkas could be oddly elusive. Um... So you just, it's him telling the story of how he's going to be Annie a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's a little, there's a lot of foreshadowing there. Yep. Um, yeah, so he's writing, a longhand. His pencil paused mid-word at the sound of an approaching engine. He was surprised at how calm he felt. The strong, strongest emotion in him right now was a mild annoyance at being interrupted just when he was starting to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. And then all of a sudden, two police officers show up in a, uh, a mountain state car. Uh, in a mountain state car. It's the state police, a state police car. Mm-hmm. And Annie says, are you going to be good, Paul? He says, yes. And he doesn't say anything. He doesn't scream. He doesn't do anything. He just watches these two police officers get up and get out, come in and talk to her. Uh, they talk to Annie a little bit. Um, he monikers them David and Goliath, which mm-hmm. is fun because one of them's larger and bigger and one's a little bit smaller. Um, and the plane's clothes. Uh, so they're both in plane's clothes and uh, more than anything else, that button coats just that Annie had been right so far. This was just a routine check back. So it really seems that the way that they're dressed and the way that they're like talking to Annie, that it just seems mm-hmm. to be them like following up on like they yep. know that somebody is out there. Um, right, right. Because, you know, they, they're backtracking their buddy who didn't come back or their, you know, their co-worker that didn't come back. They've stopped everywhere else. They're stopping at Annie's just to talk to her. Hey, did you see him? Yeah, I talked to him. He was here, gave him a Pepsi, went on down the road. And so she tells him all this and then he has these little moments to himself where he's like he has the little voice now and says you killed him you know you did and he says to himself did he believe that no of course not Mm -hmm. he's back in control now right and I and it's like you're talking about it's like the spite of it all just he wasn't keeping his mouth shut for any other reason than he wants to be the one at this point to take care of Annie Wilkes himself 
He says, they can only put you in jail. I know how to hurt you. Right. He's past all thoughts of just get it, saving himself now. It is now... It is now exclusively about getting even. Right, right. Almost. I also just think that he's put himself in such a mental state of it's me or her. There's no in between. There's nothing else. It's me or her. Mm-hmm. Yep, you're um, right. So, yeah. The the spring runoff had sent his Camaro rolling and tumbling five miles down the wash. Might have lain undiscovered in the forest for another month or another year, but for the merest coincidence couple of National Guard chopper jockeys sent out as part of a random drug control sweep looking for backcountry pot farmers had seen a sun flash on what remained of the Camaro's windshield. That's that's why they're finally looking for him. Yep. The car. Mm-hmm. It was always the car. He knew it would be the car. The car. As soon as it like was discovered, it was going to send shockwaves. But then... Colorado, the state itself, becomes obsessed with the murder of a Colorado state trooper. Right. So, she, he almost immediately gets pushed to the side because of another thing Annie did. Yep. Which is really, like, funny and ironic in that way that, like, she's going to put more pressure on herself because of her actions. And she yes. has no foresight to realize no that. No foresight. Um, and so, we get into this, and after that, we are introduced to David and Goliath talking to Annie uh, downstairs, and we can hear them interrogating her, um, and essentially they're saying... questioning, and we're not interrogating I feel like, here. you're right, they're different, yeah, they have different connotations. Yeah. So, she's, they're asking her some questions about what's going on, and she's giving him the whole uh, uh, story about the Pepsi can, mm-hmm. and he says, would you mind if Luke your barn, and it's going pretty well, and... Uh, she says, uh, why to misery? My pig. She's got to throw in that her pig's name mm-hmm. is misery for yep. fun. Which seems like a stupid thing to do to tell them that you're this big into Paul Sheldon. Like, if they're going to like... Except that they've shown her a picture and do you recognize him? Well, of course I do. I'm his yeah. biggest fan. That's fair, too. It's just yeah. like, it seems particularly like you should look into that woman. Um, but, but why? I mean, he's a he's a best-selling author surely you would know who he was you know i mean you see him maybe not necessarily see him walking down the street but in an up close and intimate setting like a car wreck you know you know who his you know his face because it's on the back of every one of your books you love to read his books oh yeah yes and i guess too she is unassuming enough when she's trying to be Mm -hmm. and i think that that's kind of the whole point of her is that like when she's not that's how she got away with it for as long as she did she was in charge of a baby ward for a while you know like you have to be at least some kind of nurturing figure um and then we get this real fun scene where paul is in complete control because she's just saying why didn't you scream and he says uh i don't know i didn't want to and she was like if you would have screamed they would have taken me like there was no way that i could have taken both of them yeah and he says annie if you spend your whole life thinking the worst thing you can imagine is going to happen you have to be wrong some of the time yeah. and it's just this small subtle little clap back but you know he's just sitting there like oh man i'm so cool i'm he's the strongest like, man I've in the got world this because that's not part of my plan and she's just Sitting there, not sure what to do. Don't be smart with me, she says. And she just says, get busy. Get busy with the book. You saw the way they looked at me. Mm-hmm. And now we get to the point where uh, it seems that everyone remembers the dragon lady exists. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden we get uh, some news vans. And he's sitting there with cameras pointed at the house that he is being held captive in. And they're all looking for the dragon lady. Yep. Uh and she goes out and she lives up to her name and goes out and starts screaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the name, the word cockadoo is never going to mean the same to me after all of this. <laughs> right. And then uh, I don't care if you're John Q. Jesus Johnny Cake Christ from the planet Mars. Get off my land or you're dead. Objectively, like, terrifying. Also, though, John Q. Jesus Johnny Cake Christ <laughs> <Right>. is fantastic. <laughs> And I really am curious, like, how many of those Steve workshop before he decided on, <laughs> on that, that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, oh, Annie, oh, my Jesus, killed that stupid broad. He rolled back and peeked through the window. He had no choice to see. Annie had fired the gun into the air. She had brought a gun out to the news van with her. And until that moment, we didn't really know. Right. And then, bang, and he just thinks, 
Oh god! And then they they get out of there immediately, like run away. Yeah, um, and and they never go. Someone told them the cop was at the dragon lady's house before he disappeared. So here they are. She takes her hand um, with her nails into it, and uh, she says, "This is what they want, isn't it?" And she just starts claws right off. into her own face and starts like deeply, deeply cutting it. Um, she just starts mutilating herself, and Paul's just yelling, "Stop it! Stop it!" I don't think it's because he cares that she's hurting herself. I think he just doesn't want her to do it in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and after a while, she just raises her hand to her forehead, does it again, and leaves, just drinking her own blood almost. And she takes her blood on her hands and holds it out to Paul almost as if to say like "My, this is your fault mm-hmm. I'm doing this because of you and, and then she plotted out of the room just sad she's yeah. way at the bottom again oh yeah way at the bottom again um, but I think she is aware that she can't do anything to him at this point because yeah. it's just she's done too much um, so the police came again the next day and they story again. see all of the scratches on her face and she says I had a bad dream and did that uh, and she said I dreamed that people remembered me after all this time and started coming out here again and she says two days maybe three and we're going to get out of here and she said the next time they'll come they'll have a search warrant because they, they're, they're so they suspicious know. of her yeah they have they to know, know. Um, they know that there's more to this yeah so he busts it finishing the book Finishing the book. Finishing the book. That's all we and then get. He, and then he, he, he strikes a deal with her. I'm going to finish the book. But my ritual when I finish the book is to have a cigarette. I know I shouldn't smoke. But that's my ritual. Can I please have a cigarette? So. Um, and... She doesn't seem super excited to agree, but she does. But she does. Um, and we get in between all of this, we get these little moments where, like, they come in and throw beer bottles at her, and like, uh, the where'd you bury him at? Where's mm-hmm. the body? Like all these things, and it's sad. It really is. But also, she's brought it on herself, and yeah. we've read that throughout the entire book and seen how her actions are causing society to treat her like this. Right. So, is this a case of society pushing someone down? Or is this a case of society actually treating someone the way that they should be treated? Right. Exactly. Because she's the only one that doesn't think that she's a murderer. Um, and she essentially comes in. She's like, finish the book sooner. And he gets right back into it to the point where his fingers uh, aren't able to bend anymore. Yeah. Like, they're broken and una- unbend- unbending. And he's icing his hand after every time that he's writing. Um, and... He says, she tries to give him some pain pills in the next day, and he says no, um, and he's like, no, it's a, he's really confident he's going to finish the book today, um, and he's like, I want, this is the push, I want to finish it, I want my head clear for it, so he push. he doesn't take any of the pain pills no pain this time. Pills. Um, he finally said no. Finally was able to say no. That's the discipline he's needed. That's the self-control mm-hmm. and the hard work. Finally, all of those changes are coming into it. And she, he says, uh, Duck Daddles and I hate him, but I got a feeling he hates me as well. So he's decided he's going to finish it with the typewriter. Right. Um, and Annie says, well, I brought you all these things uh, just because I know we're about to finish it. And it's a pile of caviar and some uh, champagne and all of these special things because she's just so excited. Um, and... Sorry, I had to laugh. Uh, and Paul is just blown away that she's bringing him this like luxurious meal, and he just ends up laughing. Right. And I think Annie thinks that he's just having a good day. Right. And so she just joins in. And she's like, "Oh my God, so much right, easier." Right. Yeah. Thankfully. Oof. Yeah. And he's just—it's that uncomfortable laugh again. That like hysterical, like "What is happening?" laugh. Um. Yeah, so she brings him the cigarette, the ashtray, one match. Mm-hmm. He lays it on the windowsill, 
in his little writer's corner that he's got. He finishes the book. He says, and then, because he could not stand to do otherwise, Paul Sheldon rolled the last page out of the typewriter and scrawled the most loved and hated phrase in the writer's vocabulary with a pen. The end. And I think, while this is a really fun part to read of Misery Returns, it truly has almost nothing to do with the book. Right. Like, he's just ending his art the way he wanted to end it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the only thing that, like, really that like, you can relate there is that they escaped Africa together. Yeah. And they get their freedom. I mean, freedom. It's, it's almost, it's almost, and they lived happily ever after. Yeah. It's, and it's I mean, not, there definitely not in is, those like, words, but, but misery and... I think the yeah, only thing that, like, you really gotta, like, I think the only thing that you can really correlate is how the smoke defeats the queen bee mm-hmm. and, like, that kind of thing. Because I yeah. think that that's the closest that we get. And uh, he finishes and just takes a second to, like, really be satisfied and realizes, all right, now is when uh, the mission begins. He pulls on that little uh, baseboard and he takes out the lighter or the lighter fluid yeah um he calls for her for quite a few minutes and we get another tone or another uh act or chapter break here mm-hmm. so it really sets a different tone paul are you really done well he called back i did the best i could annie and uh and so she starts coming he can hear her crossing the linoleum and he's coming and we're adding and like i love the way steve builds all the suspense in this right because it's sitting there and she you can hear her coming the consciousness is really building and he's trying to light this match and he just he can't get the match lit i am hearing all these sounds for the last time he is so confident yes I'm here, the fear inside, but there was something else as well. He, suspo- he supposed it was the receding coast of Africa. The refrigerator opened. Here she came across the kitchen. Here she came. But what if it doesn't light when you strike it? But it was far too late for such considerations. He scratched at the rough, dark brown strip on the back of the book a third time, and a pale yellow flame bloomed at the end of the paper stick. Chapter break. That's a good one. I like that mm-hmm. one a lot because it just puts so much into a visual focus on that one little flame. Right. I just hope this, she's saying that as she walks in, and then all of a sudden she can just see Paul Sheldon with a match. And she can see on the very top of the desk is a sheet of paper that says Misery Returns. And it's the title page for the book that he's been working on, and a stack of papers underneath it. And she just says, Paul, what are you doing? And he says, too bad you'll never read it. False modesty aside, I've got to say it was better than good. It was great, Annie. And he drops the match on the book. And just, that's what all that lighter fluid was for. And Annie just starts shrieking, oh God, no, not misery, not misery, not her. Make a wish, Annie, he shouted at her. Want uh, want to make a wish, you effing goblin. (laughs) Oh my God, Paul, what are you doing? Um, And he can just start to feel the warmth of everything just hitting him in the face. Mm -hmm. And he's just sitting there satisfied. Um, And... Paul is very proud of himself in these moments because this is exactly how he planned it out. She goes to grab the papers to try and stop it. And just as she does, he grabs the typewriter and throws it at her head. But he misses. And it doesn't hit her head like he had planned. And it's just, that's so frustrating, I can imagine, because he's that close to getting exactly how he needed it. And it hits her in the back and she goes down to the floor and she's just writhing and moaning and she's trying to get up. Paul gets up. Uh, and he's trying to get around her, but then she pulls Paul down onto the floor with her. Um, and you, they can feel the typewriter underneath their body. And Steve like, really points out like right, all of the right. things that they're in. And she's screaming like a cat, writhing around. And she's... You can feel the fire going around. Uh, and he starts reaching out for his hand, and he finds exactly what he's looking for. And he finds a handful of hot, charry paper. And he just shoves it down her throat. And he here's says... Here's your book, Annie. Ah, yes, here's your book, Annie. <laughs> so good. Um, and shoves it down her throat. And, and, and then, I'm not and gonna... she's got this this horrible expression. What happened, Paul? I was bringing you champagne. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, just this... this I, I imagine that it's just this look of betrayal on her face. And I think that, like, Paul gets to the point where he's not even trying to do this to save himself. He's trying to hurt her as 
badly as he can. Mm-hmm. Like, he goes to the point of saying he's going to rape her. And it's not physically, like, sexual rape. It's with the books and right. what he's doing. He exactly. doesn't want to change yep, what yep. he's doing. But the mental idea of doing that to someone is to destroy every sense of protection they have. Yes. And he's trying to do that with this woman. She's trying to really put an end to her. Um, and uh, she goes to get up and she goes to stand up and what happens? Step two, then she tripped over the typewriter. That's what mm-hmm. happens. So she goes to stand up, Paul's backing away, and then she trips over the typewriter, falls into the mantle. At the end of the day, the typewriter, Ducky Daffles, yep. is exactly what does her in. Well, it's exactly what does her in. And she just falls to the ground. and uh, In a vast tumble that shook the house. So, of course, Paul has to get his act together here. Said he he's not get any of his pain pills, but I'm sure he's got enough adrenaline at this right, point. Right? Uh, yeah, it's, he's, I'm sure he's through. going on strict, pure adrenaline at this point. So he he uses the uh, blankets to put out the flames, and uh, he began to crawl back toward the wheelchair. He was halfway there when Annie opened her eyes. Terrifying too, because he just yeah, like, oh, this woman right? should be dead for sure, and then. She says, dirt, ooh, dirt, and she starts screaming, dirt, and Paul is just freaking out, trying to get to the door, um, and he gets to the door, but Annie just barely grabs onto his left calf and is pulling him as Paul reaches out on the door jam, and it's just this tug-of-war of Paul with broken everything, trying to get through the door, Annie holding on and pulling him with her, like, broken might. Right. And on his left leg... Where there's no foot to grab anymore. Mm-hmm. That's what saves him. Because and there's nothing. Her hand just slides right off the bottom. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then whoosh, um, he crawled through the door expecting her hand to settle around his ankle again at any moment. But they did not. And we get this moment where she gets up to him and she grabs him. But then she just faints on top of him. Mm-hmm. So he works out from underneath her, closes the door, and just... And locks it. Locks it. And then falls asleep right in front of the door because he didn't know what else to do. It's just right. like relief. Like, he yeah. did it. He's, it's it's got to be a she's sense of... She's inside. Like, he's outside. There's got this this relief. and, and Okay, so... Uh, he wakes up and there's a moment where he's convinced he's made everything up. That like he isn't... Like nothing actually happened. Yeah. Again, it's that, that sense of... Um, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know when I'm at. It's dark. This isn't familiar. I'm in a new place. What's going on? And he is already got a plan. So he's like, we got to follow through with this plan. Mm-hmm. And he goes to uh, start crawling towards the parlor. Get to the parlor, break the window, get out of this awful house. And he's just crawling and trying so hard. And the entire time, He's just so scared of Annie of being right behind him. And he mm-hmm. looks behind him the entire time, just constantly over his shoulder, over his shoulder. And like the way Steve writes that, you get such a good layer of suspense and... Uh, Only uh, shadows. Oh. Shadows and so vivid ima- imagination. Um, and... Uh, he goes to reach for the table where he had found the book originally because mm-hmm. he's thinking he's going to find it there. And he doesn't find the table. He finds the penguin sitting on the block of ice, which is so cool that Steve has made like a point of telling us every time that this has been in his side of view. And this this is the mo- the thing that saves him. Yep. He throws it through the window and he just starts yelling, here, here, and here, I mean, here, please, please help. Um, because he heard the car door. Yep. He heard the car door open and shut. Blisters broke open, dribbling pus. He drew his arm back and heaved the penguin through the parlor window, just as he had thrown an ashtray through the window of the guest bedroom not so long ago. Um. And it was the same two cops. Who had been there the other night. Who had been yeah. there the other night. Well, David had, and Goliath. David and Goliath is what he had called them. And uh, they start talking about the, the Count of Monte Cristo, which, I mean makes sense there's a guy in that book who'd been spent 40 years in solitary confinement and he Mm -hmm. i think and like we're starting to relate that to paul and like it's gonna be hard to talk to somebody when they've been four months just with the captive um and we end up finding out their names uh 
he kept calling me David. I don't know why. And he says that uh, when Paul, he finds Paul, he just says, David, David. Like, he calls him David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. He has no concept of, like, socialization anymore. Um, Watch out for her. Be careful. And he's, like, finally he's... they get in. And so the two police officers that, like, were there, you know, like, he's now, like, I imagine, like, walking into this scene, you have a man with his foot cut off one thumb missing he's covered in blood and ash, ash and, paper and paper and like and everything and laying in the middle of the floor and just a mess and the window's broken and he's skinny and just awful so they come in and he's like annie annie's in the bedroom watch out for her. be careful because he doesn't know for sure that she's dead anymore um. he thinks she is but maybe not yeah and at the end of this chapter, we get the most ch- chilling. Literally, this is the moment that sent chills down my spine through this book. And he's like, you got to be careful. She's in that room. And he, he falls back asleep and he opens his eyes. It's the other police officer. Mm-hmm. And he goes, uh, he, he's just like, she was dead. I knew it. The real part of my mind did, but I can hardly be in which the police officer says, there's blood and broken glass and shard paper in there, but there's no one in that room at all. Paul Sheldon looked at Wicks and then he began to scream. He was screaming until he fainted. Hey, Gunston listeners, Otto here. Have you ever heard of something called bills? Well, Kim is explaining them to me, and apparently we need to pay them. So here's some commercials. Did you think the equipment just paid for itself? Well, I figured we had investors. (laughs) No? (laughs) Richie the Mouth with KTLA Radio, coming at you live with Larry Underwood's new hit single, Baby Can You Dig Your Man with those smooth crooning tunes that'll make you swoon. Listening to KTLA Woo Radio. From New York Times bestselling author Paul Sheldon comes Misery's Return, a rich young widower, a newly dead wife, a newborn baby, and their friend Gregory, also this guy with an offensive accent. Discover the intrigue of life as they take a trip to Africa. Discover resurrection and allergy comas. Bees? A goddess bee? Join Misery as we have never seen her before as Paul Sheldon breathes new life into a timeless classic coming August 44th, 2012. Hi, constant listeners. If you're looking for another way to support First Time Through, you can do that at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash first time through. There you can get access to exclusive content, including video reviews of the movies based on the books that we've read, exclusive pictures and blogs, as well as exclusive early access to episodes, sometimes up to days early, but sometimes hours early. What a great time to find your freedom. Hit the open road with Greyhound. All one-way tickets, just $44.95. Don't forget to grab your postcard at the official Greyhound desk before boarding your bus. Hey everyone, Otto here. I'm just making this quick little interlude, this quick little pop-in, this quick little like yo-yo. Just to thank you for your patience. Uh, Kim and I went through a couple of different things. Uh, This is one of the busiest times of the year for her. And I got particularly sick and uh, it it was really terrible. And uh, But we're all feeling a lot better. We're both getting into a much better rhythm. We have a good plan. We have a new schedule. We have new ways to battle these things. We're very excited about the content we're going to bring to you. Thank you so much for supporting us because it means a lot to us. And if there's any way that we could show you that, I hope that you'll reach out and tell us. Thank you so much. Now, enjoy the rest of this absolutely incredible podcast. I mean, who would have thought that this would be so, so good? And they're so humble and talented and smart at the same time. Wow. I am impressed as I listen to it while I'm editing it. That's all I'm saying. Um, okay, so what did I just say? I said Paul Sheldon looked at Wicks and then he began to scream. He was still screaming until he fainted. Yeah, so he just passed out from terror, exhaustion, shock, etc. Yes, all of these things. Mm. And then we go right into part four. 
out of like you, you if you like have a physical copy of the novel in your hand there's literally 10 pages left so it's like why mm-hmm. we're in another part all of a sudden so it's it definitely signifies chapter break almost but it really signifies big time skip like life yeah. shift almost yes. is what it made me yes. think you know um, but it brings us all the way back to the beginning and uh, we get what's fun is we get two little quotes from Misery's Child and Misery's Return yeah uh, and we get to like I think this is one of the ones that like was handwritten so you couldn't really understand it um, only a piece of stone uh, and it's just kind of fun to talk. It's a little allusion to like things that seem immovable, but once you get past that obstacle, they're really just a regular thing that didn't have that power that you were bestowing upon them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't feel like that's accurate, but I mean, I hope that's not how Paul feels. Like this woman definitely had some control over him. Definitely had some um, control over him. Yeah. So we get in here, and then like you're saying, it's right back at the beginning. Umba one, you're an Umba one fan. These sounds even in the haze. Just never gonna be able to unhear that. Never. It's one of those sounds. Never. Mm. Um, it, it's now I must rinse. She said, and this is how it rinses out. Oof. So he's just recalling her and like putting her into that moment, and like that's another like that's two chapters into part four already. Yes. So it, it's scene change. Scene change. Like he's confused. He's struggling to like get back into normalcy. He's probably got ptsd like, like nobody's business oh my I gosh mean, the worst um so they the police officers carry him uh out of annie's house and drive him down to the hospital um he gets what is it a fake prosthetic right a custom-made prosthetic and mm-hmm. uh he actually says that he's has a better walk um and in an ironic way uh Annie had done him a favor, which is funny. Uh, By cutting off his foot, she actually did him a favor. Yeah, which, I mean, like, that's a weird way to think about that. Like, the fact that that's even a sentence that, like, he's just trying to justify and all of that trauma to himself right yes. now. Just like yes, he is. <laughs> at least like one good it. things came out of it. And right. I mean, that's gonna that's got to be the thing about the novel as well, is that there's always going to be that sense of at least I got the novel out of this. Right. Yes. Um, <clears throat> he was drinking too much, not writing at all. His dreams were gone. I mean, bad. he's just completely bad, bad. lost his way. He's lost the things that make him happy. That make him him. Mm-hmm. And or I at mean, least in his eyes. Maybe, you know, but, you know, that's his identity. And he's I mean, a writer. If and we st- if he can't do that, who is he now? I don't even know if it's that he can't do it. He probably only relates it to his trauma now. Right. And I think that's sad. I was also going to say that uh, he was not ready at all. His dreams were bad. If we're taking Annie's childhood trauma as being the reason that, like, her depression hit so hard in those moments of her lows, it makes sense to me now that Paul has this incredible trauma in his life. He's probably going to develop a similar mental illness to Annie's. And, and at least the depression part. And, yeah, and that's what I should say, yes. Really the Similar, like, the, the downs, the similar downs, lows. Yeah. She's going to yeah. start to experience this. I don't think he's going to become a sociopath. Not a sociomaniac <laughs> as well as she is, but more of, like, but more similar to not doing the things that he knows will help him feel better. Right. Uh, and we see that a lot in Annie throughout the novel, and mm-hmm. so it makes sense that... She, I think we're getting that little bit of like what happened, your foil, uh, you know, what you learn from the other character that you yeah. interact with throughout the entire novel. And I mean, Paul picks up some of Annie's vernacular, but it also seems like he's going to pick up some of the way that she he processed she processed her emotions. Um, outside everything in the world, my friend, and like everybody's telling him that Misery Returns is going to be the best book that has ever sold anything. And if I bought a book that came with the tagline i wrote this while i was being held captive for six months i also would buy a book that said that that's just interesting even if it wasn't even if it wasn't my thing i would probably buy that just to read the experience oh yeah definitely because you got to know that like it's going to be directly related upon like whatever hostage situation he was in Mm -hmm. um and they started just talking about the novel uh and 
probably not ever. I believe he could set ten million. Didn't uh, when he said yeah, it. his his uh, publicist wants him to write the nonfiction or can, account of his ordeal. He thinks that that would be an even bigger seller than the Misery Returns. I mean, I cannot. There's no way that reliving that to write that down for somebody else to read could possibly be good for him. Writing it down for himself may be therapeutic, but writing it down for everybody in the world to read, I just know. Just sharing that. Nope, like, nope. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> seem like it would be a good thing for him mentally, for everyone in the world to only see him as that. Yes. Because then it's like we saw with Annie. Like once everyone in the world only saw her as the dragon lady, she could not cope with the world anymore. Exactly. And Paul seems much more aware that with his fame, if you seem to add in like the also that the he's, infamy, the infamy of what he did and like what has happened. And that's the thing too is like if he does tell the nonfiction story of it, he has to tell everyone about how he peed his pants. And how he peed into, and drank his own pee. Yep. And how he kissed Annie and how he, like, tried to murder her a couple of times. And, like, everything that he did to survive. And I don't think he wants to share some of those no. moments at all. I don't think so either. That would be very shameful, even if you did them in the act of survival. Right, right. Um, which is not the fact... I don't think any of these things are shameful that he did these things to but survive. But there would be a perception. But it's an amoral perception based on the context. Right. Um, and he's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to write that. And he's like, writing may be masturbatory, but God forbid it should be an act of auto-cannibalism. Right. So he's saying, no. yeah, I want to enjoy it and, you know, get myself off to my own stuff, but I shouldn't write something that's only going to destroy me. Right. Like Hamilton does. And it does. absolutely would. Yeah, absolutely. exactly. It would 100%. He would sell, make a lot of money off it. He probably would not have to worry about it. You ever seen a man ruin his own life? <laughs> um... He yearned for Norville. He's definitely still that. The, he's drinking to like get rid of that. Um, he's got a giant, nice, beautiful computer. He talks about now, um, but it's just sitting there like a paperweight. Fifteen thousand dollar paperweight. <laughs> um, he tries. He's going. He just got a new apartment, and he's going to get the key out of the envelope. Um, and he's just sitting here thinking about. No, no, the envelope is the manuscript. It's oh. the finished manuscript of the book. The bound gallery uh, or the mm -hmm. sticks. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, but yeah, it is a new apartment. He's you know changed everything. Got a new place, new leg, or new foot, new you know trying to to put things back to rights, put things back to normal. So um, yeah. and it's just kind of like that classic like. He's got his uh, walking stick in one hand. He's got the envelope in the other. And he props up his walking stick against the wall. He goes to get the key. Uh, he goes to put it in the thing. But then he drops his key. As he bends over to get his key, he knocks over his walking stick. As he mm -hmm. does that, the envelope splits open. And the pages just start to fall out. And he's just trying not to cry. He hoped he would get mad. He didn't want to cry out in the hall. But he might. Right. He just doesn't have the... Like, doesn't have the spirit for anger and like rage anymore like yeah. those emotions have been quelled in, but then he like, wants the good dope the yeah. antidote his antidote and he was so tired all the time his antidote what a word it's his it makes me think he just wants a ex really good excuse to rage out and have his emotions yeah. without having to worry about the judgment or of anything. If anything, that was one thing about Annie. She never judged him for any of his choices. Nope. She told him that they were bad choices. She told him he was not being a good person because he did those choices, but she never changed how she treated him, even right. if it was poorly. <laughs> well, even if it was crazy. Yeah. Um, Get the key out. Uh, and that's what it's like at the end. This is why no one ever writes. It's too dreary. Uh, and he's just sitting here just absolutely filled with this anxiety and we as readers are right now too that Annie's mm -hmm. still out there somewhere right that she just escaped from that room and they couldn't find her um don't be uh, and we turn the page first don't be a don't be and then be uh he stopped need time to realize the apartment was too dark and there was a smell he knew that smell a deadly mixture of dirt and face powder Annie rose up from behind the sofa like a white ghost the axe was in her hand and she was screaming time to rinse Paul time to rinse he shrieked, turned to 
tried to turn on his bad legs. She leaped to the sofa with clumsy strength, looking like an albino frog. Her starched uniform bristled briskly. He looked down and saw he was nearly cut in half. So at that point, you realize it's a dream. Yeah. You, you, and it's, it's scary at first. It's not a dream. It's a hallucination. Hallucination. Right, and right. You just because... And, but it's... It, the, it's... It's the same it's thing. It's terrifying. It's the opposite yeah. of what we had at Annie's house. Right. When he would be completely enveloped in his own thoughts and just thinking about things and he'd have those like small little opposite mm-hmm. like things that would like completely break in. Here, the only thing that now that is breaking into his thoughts is like when he drops the stick. It's something that is like physically manifesting right here in front of him. Mm-hmm. So he's not even aware until he looks up and the apartment's too dark and he's being attacked. Yes. Like he's just gotten, if nothing else, he does have a little bit more of a sense of security here and it's starting to build. But then the hallucinations hit. So yeah. it's subconsciously his body is not safe. His brain, yeah, his, his, his brain, brain does not feel safe. That he, no matter how many tricks he's playing, no matter new places he goes. Um, and I think, if nothing else, PTSD. Mm-hmm. That is the, the proof in the pudding. Um, but then, Polly. Can you? No, oh, yeah. Gonna play Can You again. Chapter five. Chapter, chapter six. five. Chapter six. Yes, of course he could. The writer's scenario was that Annie was still alive, although he understood this was only make believe. So Steve is trying to make it very confusing, and if whether or not if she is alive or if she's dead. Right. I mean, but there's. We're in Paul's brain here, Mm -hmm. you know, and in Paul's brain, there's part of him that knows that she's dead, but there's this part of him that doesn't, that's never truly going to believe that she's dead. And she's never really going to be dead to him. No. He's, she'll always she'll, she'll always, always live exist. in his brain. Exactly. Always she'll always be there. And now we get the reveal ever so casually that Annie was not a goddess that she did in fact die. Right. That she had tripped, fallen and hit her head on the mantle and then she climbed out the window and she had climbed and crawled out to misery the pig's stall. I imagine that was she probably figured it was her only friend. It was a manifestation yeah. of this literary well, character that she loved. But she also had her chainsaw. So <laughs> she, she was, wasn't going to give she up. Was trying she to was come trying until the bitter end. Oof. The bitter, bitter end. Uh, mm. He has this little... He goes out to lunch with his friend Charles, and he's sitting there, and we're getting these really... It's like Stephen King was talking about the sliding perspective. We mm-hmm. slide into like what his memories are and out into the real world, into yeah. his memories, out into the real world. Um, chapter eight, rinse. One word, end of chapter eight. So just the idea that no matter what else is going on, life is still moving on, but the idea that that phrases, words, Annie is still there. Mm-hmm. No matter what, she's no still there. No matter what, she's still that there. That one word, you can hear, in how many times, like, you go to the dentist and, like, then it's like rinse now, and all of a sudden you're having a flashback to <laughs> right. Annie, and it's like ah. Um, half an hour later, he was sitting in front of the blank screen, thinking he had been a glutton for punishment. So we start chapter nine, and it's just him trying to write something, and something funny on the way home. Not just a big one, a small one. After all, it'd been a small incident, and been caged in a cart, been rather small. Yes. So he saw something on his way home from lunch. You know, um, that that kind of got the, the creative fires burning again. And it's just, it's kind of adorable, if I'm it being honest. It is kind of, He's yeah. just sitting there and he's just like, I've just kind of had a really bad day. And he's like, oh, except when I was coming home from work today, I saw this kid and he was just pushing this black cat in a shopping cart. But as I got closer, it had a white stripe on its back. So I go up to the kid and I'm like, hey, is that a skunk? And he says, yeah, and then just leaves. And that yeah. was the whole conversation they have. And he just says that. And then I kept going. And then he turns on the computer back on. And almost as if, like, he just had this, like, flash. He just, we get the first two paragraphs of the first chapter. And it's about this kid who has a skunk in a, a cart. And it's just, we in get another. New York City. Those beautiful little moments of creative, like, escapism. It's just, like, through everything, like. 
I think it's really beautiful the way that we're sh- he's being shown that he's moving on from this right. because it's just showing that like I'm literally about to tear up. Wow, um, it's just showing how small little interactions with human people can completely change someone's life. Right. This small little interaction he had with this kid like has almost got him healed him. It's almost right. made it, him. It's put him in a place of serenity right because you can't write like i've said before like good writing comes from a place of serenity when you're able to recall strong emotions right so So, he's in that moment of calm and he's finally able to like find the things so he could he can he could can you he can he stopped heart pounding and we're back in chapter 10 and it's it's a scene change because i don't think i think this is when he realizes he's writing Mm -hmm. and so he's just he stops and he's just realizes he's writing and he's, he's like, he stops hurting the keyboard is right. pretty much what he says. <laughs> right, right. And it's just, it's mindful now. And right. it's nice. Um, and we get a little bit more about how he had found this thing. It was a skunk and he started toward it, feet gritting in the plaster dust. And that's another chapter break. Mm-hmm. Just, he could, he could. So in gratitude and in terror, he did. The hole opened and Paul stared through at what was there. Unaware his fingers were picking up speed. Unaware that his aching legs were in the same city, but 50 blocks away. Unaware that he was weeping as he wrote. Now, my tale is told. Cute. Uh, man, it's really, I really love that Paul's, the end of Paul's story is him finding the courage to write again. Mm-hmm. Like, it could have went a lot of different ways. It could have ended with the vindication. It could have ended with revenge. It could have ended with... Could have ended with him dead. Dead. It could have ended so many ways. But instead, Steve decides to have it end with him finding his love and passion again. Yeah. Through the trauma. Through the experience that he had right. to have. Well, and I feel like that is reflective of what was going on for him. At the you know, His family had an intervention for him when this was all going on right because he was seriously having a problem yeah and you know i mean he had the the am i still going to be able to do this without the coke and i feel like that i feel like that actually was probably written slightly later i feel like that it in the in the story it said it was nine months later I feel like that that is probably, and I I am completely speculating here. I have no anything to write to back this up. I probably could find something, but I feel like that that last ten pages or so was probably written nine months later. Like in real life as well. Like in real life as that would, well. Like that would make sense to me. Like just because it seems like he's a very methodical writer methodical liar he's a very (laughs) methodical writer and it wouldn't surprise me if he did just take a break to be in a different mindset from when he wrote that and i do think it's almost like um it is very similar to when to a self-fulfilling prophecy yes you know it makes sense to me and stephen king's he's doing the secret he's putting it out into the world he's saying that like if paul sheldon can go through all of this trauma of this woman kidnapping him, of him getting addicted to drugs, him losing his foot, getting his thumb chopped off, watching this woman run a man over with a lawnmower, getting shoved into a cellar, and then finally having to shove burning paper down her throat. I can probably still write after I get through my cocaine addiction. Yep. And I think that that's a really, really nice, powerful like metaphor and conclusion for a novel, is through all the trauma, you can still find the things that you love and right. accomplish them. You can them. still find the passion. You can and, still find the passion. And it makes sense then, like, why he goes out of his way, like, in that last part to really say, like, he had lost his hopes, his dreams. He, he was nothing. He didn't know what to do. And it ends with him crying because he was like, I thought this was gone. Right. And it's here still. And it's here still. It's nice. Yeah. Um, it's really, yeah, fantastic book. I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I'm really glad that this is, like, what started it all because I really think, like, it's going to be good. Um, and now I really can't wait for the stage play. <laughs> I know, right? Like, uh so great. So. Um, okay, so 
So let's talk about this. Um, we were thinking about doing at the end of all of our like little series, uh, we have like three major points that we want to talk about at the end of every book. Uh, we want to talk about our overall experience. And I feel like we kind of were just now, but I feel like that right. was more overall experience of the ending. Um, we want to uh, ask each other the question of if we would read it again, which I feel we know Kim's answer at the beginning <laughs> yeah. of every single time we ask this question. So it will be pointless. And then we're going to give it a rating. Um, we have a three-point rating scale that we're going to try and develop as we continue on, but right now we're going to give each book ten points for plot, uh, the story, the plot, the premise, whatever the setup is, mm -hmm. those thing, the hook, like why, right. like what, what am I reading? Uh, we're going to get ten points for the writing itself. Is it engaging, hooking? Are the characters written well? Is there a good character arc? Do you feel is connected? There, do you feel connected to Paul? I felt connected. I had moments where I was connected to Annie in this right. one, so. Right. It's obviously something he is capable of, and I think that we should keep track of how well he does it throughout the throughout other novels. each, yeah. And then the third point, uh, you can get 10 points in a novel for the it factor, pun intended. And essentially that it factor is anything, it, it's that indescribable quality of a book. It's, that, it's, the, it's why we would read it again. It, it is what defines your overall experience. It is... It is the it factor. Exactly. There's yeah. no other way to put it. And I think that everyone that's listening to this will truly understand. Like, they'll just understand They'll understand that. that. It's, right. it's a weirdly... It's like love. It's hard to explain it, but you get it. But you get it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so Otto, would you read this book again? Absolutely. I almost read it again after I finished it. Like, really, really close to it again. Um, but... I really wanted it to be just like a one-time through kind of like thing as we're reading through it. Um, I really feel like we'll end up doing this episode again as we get better through I things. I feel like so. This, like this, I feel like misery will definitely come back around. And I really liked it a lot. Um, yeah, no, I really. I'm gonna start like doing a, like my own little ranking system. Mm -hmm. And like obviously this one is number one right now because we've only read one Stephen King book, but. And by we, he means he. <laughs> yeah. I've, we've only read one on the podcast. Yes. But I really feel it's going to be a minute before it's toppled. Yeah. That was really, it was, it's a really it's a incredible novel. powerful story. So, like, I would put this up there in, like, some of my favorite books I've ever read. Uh, so, Kim, would you read this book again? Absolutely. I like, like I said <laughs> at the beginning, this is one of my top five favorites. And I have your list in here somewhere too. Kim's top five favorite books, Misery, top five. And it it grabs me every time. I talked about it when we were earlier on. I talked about how when you get to chapter twenty two and section two, that I couldn't stop reading. I knew what was gonna happen. I've read the book before, I know what's gonna happen, but I'm so hooked that I have to keep turning the pages. I have to keep reading. Mm -hmm. I'm always up. It doesn't matter when I get to that point of the book, I always finish it that in that sitting. Gotta. Because it's the gotta. I've gotta finish it because it's even a brilliant... though I know what's gonna happen, it, and you know, I said previously, I was only 13 when I read this the first time. So my experience as a 13 year old is a heck of a lot different than my experience as a 46 year old. And so, it, and that's the way it's been with everything. Yeah. Everything that I've read more than once, it's just a very different experience to read it again when you're in a different state of mind, a different uh, so phase what of your was, life. So what was your experience reading through it this time? This time, um, there was a new excitement that I haven't had in a long time because I knew that not only was I reading it for the first, reading it again for me, but I was reading it to help you with your first time experience of it. Yeah. And to, to talk about how it hit you. And um, you know, we talked about at the beginning that you didn't like the short chapters. And, and then when I explained to you why I felt like they were written that way, you were like, oh, see, that makes sense. So it, I read it with different eyes. I read it more as um, maybe as a teacher. I so like my overall experience for it is it was something that I focused on more reading wise than I have in another novel just because normally recreational reading for me it's something that I do for fun I listen to music at the same time and I'll do something else so it's never like a singular focus 
Whereas while reading through these Stephen King novels, I've just put on like lo-fi beats and like just like no word music, just like things to have on in the background. And I focus really uh, on the novel a lot. Um, it gave me a different experience just because I felt myself get somewhere engrossed in it. And I felt myself in those moments with Paul, like in that room a little bit more like on edge because I was so worried for him. And it was really great. And I think that like it really opened my eyes to giving more full attention to novels. Um, it's weird, actually. It's something that I've noticed as I've gotten older that like the more I give full attention to things, the more I enjoy it, mm-hmm. which makes sense to me. But like... I also have the capacity to do six things at once. So I get this also, this real good pleasure out of doing six things at once. Uh, but as I've gotten older and watched more TV shows and like movies and stuff, like focusing on that singular element, I've always ended up getting more out of it. And I think that that's, this experience truly opened my eyes about that for reading as well. Yeah. Um, also, just really loved this book. And having like you to like text with, like when I got to those <laughs> moments was really fun. Um, it's just not something the most similar thing I have is anime and manga and like comic books so like when like a really exciting moment happens in a comic book I text some of my friends but for the most part I don't have people that like I read novels with so having this has been really great for me um, and really nice and exciting so that has been my overall experience I feel like like, it'll be very different based on the next book because it won't be mostly like so new and fresh and shiny but I think I'm glad we started with this one yeah I, I feel like you know the the sci-fi geeks i i had a poll question in a group that i'm in and they recommended the science fiction fantasy geeks recommended starting with salem's lot and while i think salem's lot is a really good book and i really can't wait to get to it um this one is just so powerful this one was personal for me it's very it's very personal i mean and you went back and forth you connected with paul sometimes you connected with annie sometimes but that's one of the things i've always enjoyed about stephen king's writing is there's always a character i connect with there's always a character to connect with um his character development and as you'll learn um even in the short stories 10 12 15 18 pages you're going to connect in a different way but you're going to connect with somebody in the Mm -hmm. story um and i think that that's one of his strongest writing points is that he writes people in a way that they are real Mm -hmm. they're real you want to know what happens next you want to know how paul's book sold you want to know you know did he finish the new book Mm -hmm. you know is he really going to be okay you want to know what happens next and um you know, there's a, a clickbait every year. Every year I fall for it. Every year on April Fool's Day, there's a clickbait that there's a sequel to Christine. And every year I click on it because this is going to be the year. No, there's not going to be a sequel to Christine. Please, please write a sequel to Christine. Um, <laughs> but I want to know what happens next because I love that story. We're going to get to that for my birthday. Um, I want to know what happens next. And I feel like that is a trademark of a good writer. If you want to know what's going on in these fictional people's life after you close the book, there has been a connection. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, so that's that's the thing that I have always enjoyed. I mean, there's people I've met in real life, and after they've left my field of view, I never think about them again. So the fact that there, I'm probably going to think about Annie or Paul Sheldon more than I think about a real person is a telling trademark of a good character as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so ratings. Yes. Uh, what would you give it for plot? For plot? Plot and story. Plot and story. I think this one is about a nine. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I, I think don't know that I have a ten. Oh, okay, good. That. No, no, no. Like, and that's the thing, too, is I feel like there's things in this story that I... Little holes you can point out and, like, little things, yeah. too. Of course, you can always do that with any story if you're trying hard enough. But I am a sucker for meta fiction. Truly, just, I love it so much. 
I think this plot and the idea of it, the concept of it, the way that it's executed, it's a, like, I really want this to be my 10 for plot. This is going to be my gold standard. I'm going to be comparing, I mean, that's going to be the thing for me is most of everything that we read from here on out, I'm going to compare it to Misery. And like, As you if, if it's as engaging and as grossing as yeah. the Misery was for me. Um, so that plot for me is a 10. Okay. Slow burn plot into a really beautiful, like, into slow burn plot into a really beautiful moment of just emotional cathartic release into terror. Yeah. Just really well done. Um, all right, writing. Okay. I think the writing in this book is a solid 10. Yeah. Because the way he writes it is so literal. Mm-hmm. It's so literal. The, the short chapters, the, the in and out of consciousness, it, it, it just makes sense to me. I, and that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about this book is it, it always made sense to me. I'm going to give it an eight for two reasons. I don't like the short chapters. I said that, and yeah, like right that has not back. changed, and I don't want to change my opinion of that. Like, I understand them, and I appreciate them now. Doesn't change the fact I don't like that it's still written like a teleplay. Um, secondly, there are moments where it's very confusing to tell if this is Paul Sheldon telling us the story, Stephen King telling us the story, or if it is actually happening in like a third-person lens. Mm-hmm. There are moments where... We get these little jokes where he's like, and I wouldn't realize how important that typewriter would be for another 13 weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's, is that Stephen King telling us the story then? Is that Paul telling the story from to a therapist like we have like we had theorized? Or is it just a moment of out-of-body writing for the th- reader? Right. And regardless of what it is, it, it doesn't, it always pointed, it always ended up being a very obvious thing for me. It would always take me out of the story just a little bit. And I think that's the things that I will always get down on writing for. If it takes me out of the story, I am going to be disappointed in it. I really think the dialogue in it's really good. I mm-hmm. think the way that Paul thinks, his stream of consciousness writing is really fantastic. The perspective sliding is really good. Chapter six in part one will forever be one of the greatest chapters I've ever read when he slides back and forth. Like when she's telling him the story of okay. finding his car mm-hmm. and he's remembering it at the same time. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. And I think that that chapter alone shows why writing is a level of art that cannot be recip- like replicated anywhere else. You can't get that same feeling from a TV show. You can cut back and forth between two things and have like a little overlying fading like cut, but you're never going to be just clearly jumping between two perspectives yep. while like just the way that it's written can't be it, it done can't on be film. duplicated. It cannot. Not in any other media. Nope. And like, yeah, you can do it in pictures. You can do it in art. You can do it. In, you might be able to do it in a comic book. Maybe. But it would but be it would messy. Be, it, it wouldn't would be, be as messy. clean yeah. as it's presented in this. Yep. Um, so I, I, and I really just did not want to give it, I can't give it a 30. Because like, <laughs> right? for me, the it factor is not I mean, you got to save that. Yeah. Save and that's it. the thing is like, there's going to be one that like really but blows my mind. But when we revisit mind. this book. If it ends up being the one that blew my mind, I'm going to be like, I'm re- yeah. rewinding everything. It's a 10. <laughs> right. But right now, uh, I'm giving it an eight in writing. Okay. And so now we get to the it factor. Um, and it's a 10. It's a 10 for me. It's so good. It's so... The concept, the gore, the terror, the suspense, the... The gata. The gata. He really nails the gata in this one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm I'm also going to give it a 10. There probably won't be a whole lot of these books that I don't give a 10 for one reason or another. Um, but with this book, it's always I can't put it down. So you gave it straight 10s, right? Nope. A 9, nine and 2 on, 10s. 9 and 2 10s. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. 9 for plot. A ten, 9 and ten, 2 10 and, 10. and I feel like that is... That's the thing for me. If I can put a book down, it's it's not going to be... And I think that that's part of this book, too, is it almost feels like it's written for you to put it down during the first part. Mm-hmm. It's written for you to popcorn read through, read a couple of chapters, put it down on your nightstand, read through, put it down on your nightstand. But then once you get to the second part on that night where you're just sitting up at 1130 and you're like, oh my gosh, what is about to happen next? And all of a sudden, you know, it's 4 a.m. All of a sudden, it's 4 a.m. And you're, and you're done with the book and you're crying. And, and it was significantly <laughs> more 
gripping than you had realized. Yes. And I think... Yes. But that that beginning part is so important to make that connection. Because yep. you've made that connection, and then you get to that, that, that clunking block of wood, that wooden clunking sound, and you're like, what in the hell is going to go on here? Yeah. And you can't stop. You can't stop. It's, it, yeah, it's the gotta. You gotta. And, and I feel like that that's something that he does exceptionally well, is he gets you to a point in every book that there's a gotta. Okay, that's good. There's a guy. I'm excited to see that. And I think, like, it really opens up... I don't know. I've always heard this adage, you start your stories where they're interesting. And I like that. That's what Stephen King did here. He started it right at the kidnapping, and then you find out all, like, the stuff is revealed as you go through the story, and it's really well done through that. Um, Overall, Misery, for me, I gave it a 28 out of 30. Kim gave it a 29 out of 30. And we want to hear what you give it. Uh, Tell us. Let us know on your email. Send us any comments, any responses, and we'd love to hear what you have to say. Our scale, again, was plot. So the story, the overall, like, feel, like, the story, the plot, the concept, the idea, like, Mm -hmm. what we're executing here. The writing is how it's written, the dialogue, the characters, um, pacing, Mm -hmm. uh, language. And then the last one is the it factor. And it's just that undeniable quality that a book has. What draws you back to it again? Why are we talking about it? Is it worth talking about? Why are we talking about this book? That came out in 1987. Right. Here we are, you know, 33 33 years later talking about this book. And it's, it's still really real. It's not, yes, it's set in those days, but it's not... It's not far-fetched. To those days. How many times have you been out in the middle of nowhere without cell phone reception? Yeah. That's the only thing that, like, would really change, like, right. nowadays. And, well, and, and being up in the mountains, you were just up in the mountains. I had Colorado. terrible internet terrible, reception. It took terrible. me an extra two hours to upload the episode last week, or on the, two weeks in October. Ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I really don't know what else we should say at the end of it. I feel like that's really good because you're going to put the... Yeah, I'll put the tag into it too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, join us next week where we're going to be starting to talk about... Oh, Otto, Kim, that was incredibly interesting. Great job today. If you would like to support First Time Through, you can follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, or send us an email at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. You can also become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash firsttimethrough to get exclusive early access, to get exclusive videos, and to become our exclusive friends. If that's interested to you, I'm interested. First Time Through, New Eyes on Castle Rock, is produced by Empty Theater Productions. It's created by Kim Payne and Otto Mullins. Editing by Otto Mullins. Music by Jason Rager. Art by Kurt Payne at Who Knew Art.